Before we get to today's show, I just wanted to take a minute to thank everyone who participated in the uh, What Topic Should Mike Choose for his next book survey. Your comments and uh, selections were really helpful. I have made a decision, and I won't get into that in any great detail now because you want to hear the show, but I will have more information about that in the near-term future. Again, thanks so much for helping me out. I really appreciate it. And now, on to today's show. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is political scientist Will Miller. Now, Will's been on the show with me once before. This was back in April, and listener response was very positive. And so I'm happy to say that not only is Will back on the show with me today, but he'll actually be running the show. Uh, Our future plan is for Will to be a regular part of the politics guys from this point on, and we are very pleased to welcome him to the team. Will, welcome. Thanks, Mike. I'm glad to be back. Yeah. Excited to uh, move forward with politics, guys. Absolutely. It's, it's great. It's great to have you. So do you want to just go ahead and plunge right in? Absolutely. Okay, I think uh, we have a lot to talk about. This yes, week, so. we do. Let's do it. So obviously this week, I'm guessing to, to nobody's surprise that's with us, we're going to lead off with the conclusion of the Senate Judiciary Committee's vetting of Judge Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, Thursday's testimonies with Christine Blasey Ford and Kavanaugh will likely be talked about uh, historically in the same vein of Anita Hills, regardless of how the nomination ultimately turns out uh, on, the, on the floor. The hearings were in many ways unlike anything we've witnessed or expected, uh, and that's from Republican treatment of Democrats on the committee to Ford's humanizing testimony to Kavanaugh's uh, pretty emotional response. Uh, the committee hearing room was obviously in case of drama. Uh, the testimony, testimony of Ford even really struck President Trump as credible and seemed to strike fear into even the most ardent Kavanaugh supporters uh, Thursday, halfway through the day. Uh, lots of reports of Republican staffers saying, you know, this isn't going the way we expected or well for us. But there wasn't any corroboration nor new details presented. Kavanaugh's testimony, even though it was viewed as more or less emotional, if not angry, still seemed to strike a chord with many Republicans uh, and even some folks that were on the fence regarding his nomination. Uh, Republican committee members raised questions themselves uh, by appointing Rachel Mitchell uh, as the independent counsel for their portion of questioning. And then they pretty quickly switched off of Mitchell from from asking questions after her first five minutes. And then Orrin Hatch and Lindsey Graham both had some pretty interesting comments uh, regarding the process as a whole. So despite the the wrenching day on Thursday, the committee did vote 1110, as we'd expect, uh, perfectly split down party lines to move the nomination to the Senate floor. But even that didn't really come without additional questions, as Jeff Flake of Arizona insisted that his support was contingent on a one-week limited-scope FBI investigation, uh, which President Trump authorized later in the day, and uh, we see this morning is, is now in go. So, Mike, what do you think about everything we've seen within the Senate Judiciary Committee Thursday and Friday? Yeah, well, there's obviously just so much that, that came at us this week. And, uh, I, you know, I guess before I get to what I think about it, and of course, I, you know, I, Jay and I talked about this uh, to, a, to, a, to an extent last week, I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to bring in a, another opinion, a non- uh, a non-white guy perspective on this, essentially. And so I asked my friend Leah if she might be willing to put together sort of a summary of how she views this whole situation. And I didn't ask her just because she's my friend, but she's very politically astute, and I have a lot of respect for her views. And so what I thought I'd do is just sort of start with this, you know, different perspective, at least from what, from, from what I would have, and kind of go from there, if that's okay, Will. That sounds great to me. All right, here we go. Uh, and she writes, On Thursday, I heard Dr. Christine Blasey Ford offer vivid and compelling testimony that Judge Brett Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her. With alarming familiarity, I heard her explain three decades of consequences she has suffered as a result of that assault. And then I heard an indignant Judge Kavanaugh offer an angry, partisan opening statement. I heard him show outright disdain for Senators Feinstein and Klobuchar. I heard him repeatedly lie under oath about drinking games, yearbook quotes, and other compromising details of his past. And I heard some of the most powerful men in the country twist themselves and the workings of our government into angry knots to defend the man who was showing everyone with striking clarity that he was unfit to sit on the Supreme Court of the United States. While women know these dynamics and navigate them at every level just about every day, 
it's still incredibly difficult and personal to see the male-female power structure so perfectly crystallized. Wealthy white men and boys use sexual violence to suppress women, and those men are routinely propped up by other powerful men so as not to upset the current order. When pressure is brought to bear on this dynamic, these men selectively use features of our democracy to undermine institutions and laws put in place to preserve it. Frederick Douglass once said, Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. That's what's happening, and in this case, the stakes are high. Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation will leave the American people with three explicitly partisan branches of government that will yet again reinforce the idea that powerful men should be rewarded with more power at the expense of others, especially women, and perhaps most importantly, it will anger so many women so deeply that we might just decide to wake up one day and burn it all down. I believe Dr. Ford. I believe women. So that was that, that was what my friend Leah had to say. And, you know, and, and clearly that, that brings a perspective in that, that as a man, I just simply can't bring to bear on that. And I think there's, there's a lot there that that's worth, you know, that's worth considering. Um, I, I certainly, in, you know, in thinking about Dr. Ford's testimony and her story, it, it's hard to, you know, like you said, even President Trump felt that she was a credible. And uh, I had you know, I had some real problems with what I felt from the beginning were very dismissive, uh, angry uh, sort of responses from this group of, you know, white male Republican senators who, I guess the biggest thing is, it seemed to me that minds were already made up. It's, I mean, I hear Mitch McConnell saying, we're just going to roll this through and I can guarantee practically he's going to be conformed, confirmed. And, and to me, that just makes a mockery of this process. If you, if you have these hearings and you already know what you're going to do, well, well, then you're just being a rank hypocrite. And I think you're doing great damage to the Senate's constitutional and I would argue ethical uh, moral duty to ensure that the people who are being chosen for these positions, especially a position like the Supreme Court, have not just the experience and uh, the expertise, but have the, you know, the ethical qualities to, to serve in these positions. And so that, I think, more than anything else, is what, is what disappoints, disappoints me. You know, Mike, it's, it's funny because I agree a lot with what you said about the process and minds being made up, being made up but I see it from a different angle at the same time. Um, as much as I see McConnell saying he's going to push through, from a numbers perspective, he could push Kavanaugh through. He knew he could push Kavanaugh through. I think we also had 10 Democrats on that committee who were going to vote no against Kavanaugh no matter what um, from the very beginning. And I think to some extent, the danger that Senate Democrats on that committee have caused uh, for themselves now and in the future is let's say somehow, you know, the FBI uh, investigation doesn't go the way Republicans are expecting. Uh, and we find out some more things about Kavanaugh or there's some actual cooperation or evidence of of what Dr. Ford testifies about. Now, all of a sudden, if Kavanaugh is not the nominee, if President Trump's next nominee is the most conservative Federalist Society judge to ever see the United States Supreme Court potentially, as long as he has a squeaky background check, Democrats have made this about something besides um, legal matters to some extent. So my concern for the Democrats um, moving forward is if Kavanaugh ends up not being the nominee, the next person who comes through, regardless of policy beliefs, probably needs to be cleared pretty quickly as long as their background's squeaky clean. So to your point, we've made this about something besides legal views. We've made this something about something besides partisanship. We've made this about something besides potentially um, what Kavanaugh did and didn't say under oath that was truthful or not truthful. And by making it about that, the next nominee to come through is playing under a different set of rules for the time being. And it's going to be interesting to see how both parties sort of respond to that, I think. Yeah, you know, and I think for a while, uh, we've seen much more of it in recent times, that that essentially the, the hearings are, I wouldn't go so far as to say a sham, but minds on both sides are made up and to me that that's the greater tragedy of this is that nobody or 
very few people go into this with uh, open in an open-minded way. It's it's I am going to vote either for or against this person, and I will use whatever I can find to justify my pre-existing decision. And, and I just I find that well, I find it reprehensible. Actually, I understandable, but reprehensible. Uh, and I should also point out my view, and maybe others don't share this view, is that uh, the president has, I wouldn't say so much a right, but the president's nominees to all these positions should be confirmed unless there's a good reason why they shouldn't be. And just having a different ideology is not, in my mind, a, a good a good reason. And, uh, you know, looking for reasons, making up reasons after the fact justifications, I find it hugely problematic. But to this, and that's kind of just a general point, and I could say that about so many nominations and and confirmation hearings. But in this specific case, here's what trouble me troubles me. Uh, Will is, is that it seems to me that we've seen. Well, I'm seeing here a pattern, and it's a pattern that I've I've witnessed with a lot of other powerful men uh, accused of inappropriate sexual advances. I mean. First, we know that women who've been assaulted are traumatized. They don't want to subject themselves in almost all cases to the further trauma of of going public. And that's totally understandable. But then because of the nature of the emotional trauma, if they do come forward, a lot of the details are going to be vague, especially if this is a thing that happened you know, under the influence of alcohol or drugs and happened a long time ago. And if we get a woman who finally reaches the point where she feels she can no longer not speak out, she speaks out, the accused vehemently denies the accusation, the the power structure rushes to the defense of this man and demonizes this woman. And, And then oftentimes what we see is other women who've been similarly victimized by the accused, they hear these denials, they know these denials are false, and then they come forward. And and I mean, obviously, I don't know what happened. And, you know, unless people were in the in that room, they didn't know what happened back then in the early 80s. But this is a pattern. We've seen this pattern again and again and again, you know, and that's what really troubles me. And that, that's why, in one hand, I was so disturbed that Republicans resisted for so long uh, having any kind of a more in-depth investigation. It seems to me the only reason they did that now is because of one Republican who's not running for anything again, Jeff Jeff Flake, who was willing to say, "Hey, wait a minute," uh, but and so I, I mean, how how would it? I guess I, what would it? What would happen? How would people feel if all of a sudden, you know, uh, Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed? He's a justice on the Supreme Court. More information comes out, and oh wow, it turns out there's credible information that he actually was a sexual predator or a serial sexual abuser or even one instance of sexual abuse. I mean, my gosh, given the nature of the position, I would think that just common decency and due diligence would would, would say, let's have an investigation. And so I'm glad that we're going to have one. I'm concerned that it will just you know, I, I, obviously, I hope it's a real investigation and not just sort of a you know fig leaf type of thing. But but we'll see how we'll see where that goes. And I agree on the investigation. Um, I think we've seen a lot from the Republicans this week that was kind of their worst case scenario. And when I think even about Dr. Ford's testimony, I mean, again, it's it was incredibly moving. It is clear that something happened to Dr. Ford. It is clear that it is still vivid to her. Um, you know, at this point, like you said, we don't know exactly what it was. We don't know exactly who it was because we have two very dichotomous versions of what occurred, obviously. Um, but I think for Senate Republicans, the part of the reason they were pushing not even just the investigation off, but really trying to not even have Dr. Ford testimonies, because again, it, the humanizing aspect and, you know, to Leah's point, when you read her, uh, her views on that male female dynamic, I think for everybody who watched that testimony, and this includes President Trump, there was no denying that Dr. Ford was a human being at that point, and that changes how we think about this. It's a lot easier to sit there and read two written accounts of what occurred and say it's a he said, she said. But then when we have two individuals up there um, giving testimony about this, it really humanizes it in a way that makes it real for anybody watching, um, anybody tuning in, anybody seeing any of the video from that day. And again, Dr. Ford, beyond the credibility, I mean, even just the things like Cory Booker giving her coffee, her asking for a break, everything about that interaction 
builds um, that human side and makes individuals want to know, you know, how can we help her get closure? How do we figure out if it was Kavanaugh or not? Um, the interesting part with Flake, obviously, is that, I mean, that seemed to come out of nowhere. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of coverage about the the two women um, talking to him. Uh, right. We'll use that term as he was going to the elevator. And again, I don't know if that changed his mind or not, but um, it's definitely something where I think the investigation will hopefully provide some closure one way or another on this. Obviously, it's going to be politically probably a, a grenade to pass back and forth for a while. But my honest hope, too, would be if this investigation comes back and send there, says there's no corroboration um, to back Dr. Ford and we're stuck where we are today. If the investigation happens and we're still there, I hope Democrats are voting 100 to nothing. Um, I hope the vote for Kavanaugh at that point is we had our investigation. There's nothing that proves this. And as a result, we need to move forward with the nomination because we have now made it about this one issue. Yeah. Um, what I hope doesn't happen is, OK, well, maybe he wasn't a sexual predator, but we still don't like his policy. So we're still all voting against him anyways. And this was a charade, you know, kind of a facade to just try to, um, you know, prevent sure. this from happening. Yeah, no, I think that the, the reasonable fear on the on the right is that. This is just a delaying tactic that has nothing to do or that the, the, what happened to Dr. Ford is, you know, completely irrelevant. This is just a thing we are using to advance our ideological interests. And, of course, the fear on the other side is, is exactly the same and that this investigation is going to be a sham. It's not really going to be a serious investigation and Republicans are going to use this as cover. And that that to me is, again, the really disturbing thing is that. Both parties, well, many people in both parties seem perfectly okay with with using these these people and this situation to advance in the service of ideological agenda. And I just, in general, when when I see people being used as means to an end and, and not treated as ends in them in and of themselves, I think that's a I think that's a, a morally bankrupt type of thing to do. And so, regardless of, of which side does it, and of course. You know, we'll know a little bit more uh, in in the next week or so what kind of investigation this is. But obviously, this is uh, uh, this is certainly a story that's far from far from ended. And I think it also, I should point out, might have some pretty significant electoral consequences. Uh, wouldn't you agree? I definitely agree. And I think it's going to be interesting because there's still a couple of different ways I could see those electoral consequences playing out. Um, obviously, to Leo's point, the idea that this might be something that motivates the female voter, especially knowing how important the middle-aged white female voter was to Trump uh, in 2016. There could be some some fallout there. But at the same time, I'm watching Lindsey Graham during uh, the committee on Thursday, and I'm sitting there wondering how many white males that have been apathetic are now going to be uh, pushed back into politics as well. I mean, there's couple of stories I read this week that really get at that kind of anger that some white males across the country are feeling. Um, and again, I mean, I think it's a question of, you know, how visceral that feeling really is and whether it really propels them forward or whether those are folks that are already engaged in the process. Um, but as much as I keep hearing about the role of women in elections being impacted by this, I do think there are going to be some pockets of, of male voters that are looking at this and thinking that this is open season. This is now a witch hunt. This is whatever, um, terminology we choose to use there but something that could motivate them to come in and you know more or less uh back the individuals that they feel are going to hold their views even more closely yeah and, and from a political standpoint i can certainly understand why republicans want this wrapped up as quickly as possible because what we know about uh voters and and uh, and issues is that voters tend to if they get worked up over uh, on any issue that level of engagement tends to be somewhat brief. And so if you can put as much time as possible between a big event like this that you think will hurt you and an election, then from a political standpoint, you certainly want to do that. And so even though, you know, I certainly think it's it's not only just reasonable, but the right thing to do to have an investigation uh, and then after that have a vote, I think from a political perspective, many Republicans have made the calculation that the the, the closer the vote is, on Kavanaugh to the election that on balance, the more it's going to, it's going to hurt them electorally is, is my sense of things. Yeah, no, I completely agree um, that there is, there's obviously that concern. And again, I think what's going to be really interesting here um, with when this is occurring, 
I think from again from a political science perspective and from a voter perspective, I think what's going to be curious is how will this interact with what was already happening in terms of the midterms being a a judgment of Trump's first two years. Um, so I'm not sure which way that's going to bounce, but it takes away the normal midterm effect, and it's either going to amplify it or dilute it in some way. And it's going to be interesting to watch how. Uh, individuals try to make sense of what moving parts impacted whatever's going to happen um, in November. Yeah. And beyond that, I think the other interesting part here is from the Kavanaugh perspective. Um, I've read a lot and seen a lot of, of commentary going back and forth on the appropriateness um, of his tone and his handling of questions for Democrats uh, during his his time on Thursday. So, Mike, what, what thoughts do you have on that? How did you read into to Kavanaugh's actual um, reactions and the way he handled himself? Well, yeah, you know, and that that's something that I'm wondering about as well. I mean, it, it you know, it used to be the case, of course, that while Congress and even the presidency were held in somewhat ill repute by many Americans that lack, you know, a lack of trust that the court was a little bit different. But we've seen that change uh, quite a bit in recent years. And certainly I think this, uh, you know, Kavanaugh's remarks are just something that are going to, you know, just accelerate this lack of trust in the court. You know, now it seems like a majority of Americans say, well, you know, the court's just another partisan institution. And they can certainly point to Judge Kavanaugh's remarks about, you know, uh, uh, you know, two Democrats in Democratic centers and say, see, that's exactly what I mean, because this just isn't some private citizen. This is no matter what happens, almost certainly Judge Kavanaugh is still a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And given the, the remarks he made, it's sort of hard for some people to say, well, how is he supposed to be fair minded when he's out essentially attacking Democratic senators? Now, I guess from his perspective, he's fighting for his reputation, fighting for his professional, you know, integrity. And so, uh, you know, that to him is probably of greater weight than any sort of abstract concerns about the esteem of the judiciary. And, you know, you can sort of understand that. But but certainly this is just takes an already existing trend and just puts it into overdrive, I would say. What, What do you think? Yeah, and again, I mean, I think the the last couple of points you make there resonate really strongly with me. I mean, what I saw there was a uh, a man who had been put through um, a, a not so fun month, which he should have expected being nominated to the Supreme Court. Um, and I think I saw somebody who was basically saying, "If I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down fighting." Um, I see somebody who emphasized, um, again, trying to show at least for himself that I am going to to weigh this out to the end. And, you know, if decorum has to go out the window to do that, so be it. And, um, and I think even Kavanaugh noticed that there were probably a few times where he crossed, crossed the lines. Um, obviously the exchange with Klubakar about, uh, binge drinking and, uh, the comeback apology and yeah. Klubakar having to announce about her dad being an alcoholic and it being difficult questions. That was uncomfortable to watch, I think for, for all parties involved. Um, but I, mean, I think to your point, the, the question really becomes, now, if this works and Kavanaugh ends up on the court, how does he move forward from that testimony to show that that isn't who he truly is, if it's not who he truly is? Um, because I think there's definitely going to be that concern. We've already seen the questions come up. If you're a Democrat that shows up before Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, how do you feel the case is going to go now that you've seen how he acts with U.S. senators that are Democrats? Um and what does that mean for his legal opinions will raise raise lots of fun questions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was one other thing I I, I wanted to get your your take on. I noticed uh, an interesting difference in how both sides are, are framing this whole thing. On, on the right, uh, the it's basically been framed in, in a legal sense. As you know, uh, is, can he can we determine that he is guilty beyond of this charge against a reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt? If not, he should be confirmed. Whereas the Democrats are saying. It's not a legal proceeding. It's a job interview. And if you are interviewing somebody for a job in your in your company, given all this, how would you feel about hiring this person? And I thought, you know, those those two frames were were very obviously very different and very, very interesting. Now, I tend to think that the Democrats frame is more accurately depicts the reality of it is that there's no obviously there's no right to be on the Supreme Court or to be confirmed to any federal position, certainly. And uh, the standard of proof, I guess you could say, for a job interview is considerably lower than the standard of proof before you take away somebody's freedom in some sort of a legal proceeding. And I think that is an interesting point, and that framing by Democrats has really um, made some moderate Republicans feel 
a little uncomfortable um, because I think the response we've seen from at least, you know, not all 11 Republicans on that committee, but at least from eight or nine of them has been, I'd hire the guy anyways. I don't work off of hearsay, um, which again, discredits Dr. Ford, um, which again, whether I think Kavanaugh should be nominated or not, I do think Kavanaugh should be nominated. I think this should be pushed through, but that doesn't mean I don't believe Dr. Ford at the same time. But those disconnects, especially for hardline Republicans, has to make the moderate Republican voter feel a little queasy about this, that they would say, I'd hire him anyways, which, you know, whether they'd actually hire them or whether that's political grandstanding is obviously up for debate. Um, but they're right. I mean, Democrats are correct that it's not a legal proceeding. Um, there is something to be said for the fact that, you know, even um, Rachel Mitchell said there's no chance she would be able to prosecute in a case like this. And we know, um, you know, especially for you and I working on college campuses for for parts of our lives, the the impact of he said, she said cases are incredibly difficult to navigate. Yeah. Um, and we're in a case here where we have not just the he said, she said, but we have he said, she said, and we're using, like you pointed out earlier, 30 and 40 year memories and individuals being asked to recall 30 year memories here um, about what happened and what night the party was and what their calendar said. I mean, you know, to some extent, even for those against Kavanaugh, I personally find it weird that he still has that calendar. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's still an awkward, you know, it's it's bizarre that you pull that out. If you ask me what I did. Eight days ago, I would I'd have to look at my phone for a calendar, but I don't have it printed out and saved from uh, my my college years by any extent. Um, so I do think that part's going to be be interesting. And again, to me, it's also the precedent setting of what's the next nomination going to look like um, based on this. You know, if, if Democrats take the Senate, does this become Republicans saying, well, everything's a job interview now? Um, or if it's Republicans keep the Senate, how do Democrats approach that? And in reality, this is another, I think, good question, is what does this mean for future nominees? I mean, I watch this happen, and I think about if I was qualified or credible enough, and I was somebody who could be considered for the Supreme Court, would I have any interest in going down that path, given what's happening sure. today? Yeah. And it makes me go back to, to when President Clinton um, was looking to, to make his first nomination, and I ended up nominating Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, George Stephanopoulos, in his uh, memoir, All Too Human, spent a lot of time talking about that nomination process and the fact that, you know, Mario Cuomo was supposed to get that seat um, and waffled back and forth over the entire nomination period about taking it and ultimately never did because he was worried that he had one housekeeper who was not a legal resident alien working for him, and he didn't want that to come up. Um, and you think about how small that is in comparison to what we're dealing with today. What does it mean for the quality of judicial nominees? Are individuals that are the best qualified, potentially the best justices, simply going to say, hard pass, don't consider me, I don't need this drama that Brett Kavanaugh has now been exposed to as part of my legacy? Yeah, I think that's a great point. All right. Well, um, well I, like I said, I think this is obviously an ongoing type story. But before, before we move, move on to, it, to the next thing I have for us, I'm, I'm wondering, do you, have a, do you have a prediction? Do you have a sense of how you think this is going to, to, to play out in the end? Yeah, I mean, I think Kavanaugh's, assuming there is nothing new and um, if there's nothing new coming out of the FBI investigation, if we come back to a stalemate where the FBI is basically saying, you know, judge says it wasn't him, we don't have proof, whatever that looks like, I think Kavanaugh will move through. Um, and I think that, you know, we, I saw this morning that George W. Bush has started working the phones um, and has met with Flake and met with Senator Collins, Senator Murkowski, Senator Manchin. Um, and I think that's an interesting development because obviously Kavanaugh and Bush are, are pretty closely tied together from their work experience. Um, but I think the Republicans can safely get to the 50 votes so long as nothing from this investigation comes out that is new and damning to Judge Kavanaugh. Yeah, that, that, that's my that's my sense of it as well. And I think I, I think that uh, given well, I think that probably what's going to happen is that the FBI investigation is not going to find uh, uncover enough additional uh, evidence either way to convince uh, enough Republicans to vote against him to, to derail his nomination. And so he will he will get in by the by the slimmest of margins and uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes from there. But we'll we'll know, I think, within the next week or two, certainly. Absolutely. So despite the drama surrounding what's going on with Judge Kavanaugh, it's, it's interesting because Congress has actually been 
uh, doing a pretty good job of accomplishing progress on its new fiscal year budget. Um, obviously, Congress is supposed to pass all of its spending bills in time for the beginning of the fiscal year in October. Year in October, um, but in recent years, it hasn't even been able to pass one of those measures on time. And we've always been sitting here at this time of year talking about imminent shutdowns, what that's going to mean, what's going to lose funding. But early this year, several months into the current fiscal year, members agreed on a two-year budget plan, and so far they've actually been sticking to it well enough that they've made actual progress. They've been doing that through the use of minibus bills um, that's been successful. One's already been signed into law by President Trump. Another one's very close. Um, but obviously, Trump remains sort of the obstacle for Congress in this budget process. Uh, he's only paid occasional attention to the process, uh, at least in public, but he doesn't seem to be thrilled with what's coming towards him. Uh, even last year, he complained when he signed the spending bill. He's threatened at times this year to veto spending bills and shut down the government, uh, especially if he doesn't get money for the border wall that he uh, so badly wants. So whether this small triumph of cooperation is good news depends, honestly, on one's perspective. Uh, that spending compromise was mostly achieved by giving everyone the spending that they wanted, which isn't the cause of the rapidly increasing federal budget deficits. Um, but whether it's good or bad just depends on what one thinks about the overall levels of spending and the trade-offs involved today. So, Mike, what do you think about all this? How has Congress been able to, to move forward despite all of the, the media circus surrounding other areas of their work? Well, well, yeah, I, I agree with you entirely. That's it's a lot easier to pass a budget if uh, you just give people more, you know. Um, and it's interesting to me that uh, Republicans back in the day, not that long ago, used to used to uh, bemoan, you know, tax and spend liberals. Um, but then the Republican Party went not just to borrow and spend, but now tax cut borrow more and spend more. And to me, that seems it's certainly one way to get a budget passed, but it's incredibly irresponsible, especially if, you know, there are, there are plenty of, of folks on the right who are concerned about the rise of China. Certainly President Trump is. And well, who's the single biggest foreign holder of U.S. debt, China, uh, uh, just uh, right around $1.2 trillion. And so, you know, I, I think there's a disconnect here. And I, I this is going to sound weird. Here's a case where I agree with the with the Tea Party, the Freedom Caucus folks who say, hey, this is this is totally irresponsible. And now I, I completely disagree with their solution. I think certainly that we should raise taxes and spend spend more. But I certainly don't think that uh, cut taxes, borrow more and spend more is a sustainable, a sustainable approach, even if it does help us get budgets passed uh, in a more uh, expeditious fashion. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's the big key for me is, you know, I think the the one benefit when we think about government shuts that shutdowns is it does or should at least force that hard look at how we're spending. Um, personally, I've always been a kind of zero based budget lover um, in the sense of every year, let's rejustify every dime you have. But the issue with that approach that we learned when it's in practice is when you think about something as enormous as the federal government and the necessity that it has to citizenry and the expectations, it's hard to spend time every year or every two years saying, well, let me rejustify every penny out of the billions of dollars that I've been allocated uh, to make sure that I'm doing well with it. But I think you're right. I think we definitely do see... Um, you know, not just the, the tax and spend approach here, because obviously the tax part's not present. Um, but even more importantly, you know, just like we talked about with the Kavanaugh confirmation, do we have individuals in Congress that are taking advantage of knowing we have to pass this and I can basically sell my vote by saying I'm going to be on the fence on any budget that doesn't include these couple of things that I'm really passionate about. And then we end up with largely a a special interest budget yeah. um, where just to make sure that something goes through and we have a working budget on time and no government shutdown and we can all go to national parks. Um, are we at a point where, you know, how do we stop this? I guess is the question. How do we get to a, a better budget process? Cause I can promise you there's nobody I've ever worked for in my life or no institution where the idea of we're just going to hold back and, you know, make this a difficult process unless we get to spend whatever amount of money we want would ever work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and what really struck me about, uh, about, this part of the budget that was passed by in such overwhelmingly bipartisan uh, fashion, the Senate heck, it was ninety three to seven. Um, but 
I always like looking at the defense portion of it. And uh, uh, it turns out that the, the Pentagon, the base budget for the Pentagon in this bill, uh, just over $606 billion. Uh, when you adjust for inflation, that's the highest amount for the base budget since World War II. Um, and, uh, and this is pretty common where the defense budget tends to be ratcheted up. And in fact, in many cases, just like in this budget, where Congress actually appropriates more than the administration even asks for, uh, they, for instance, they appropriated 16 uh, funding for 16 more F-35 fighter jets than the administration requested three more combat ships. And these things are expensive items. And here's why, um, uh, the, the Lockheed's F-35 assembly facility, where is it? Well, it's in the uh, district of the, uh, house defense appropriation subcommittee chairwoman, uh, Kay Granger and, uh, the ships, where do they, where do they come from? The Senate appropriation, appropriation chairman, uh, Richard Shelby's state of Alabama. I mean, this kind of pork barreling, using defense as a job creator, that's a pretty common thing. And it's why we always see this with defense budgets in particular. Yeah, and I think we've seen that. I, mean, I think the military, to some extent, has enjoyed seeing uh, the drum of the last two weeks. Uh, even when I was looking at the Military Times this week when they were talking about the budget, uh, they even talked about the fact that you know President Trump dropped his opposition and nobody even had to notice because of everything happening with Kavanaugh. So again, this has been happening um, you know, sort of behind the scenes and out of the eye of uh, the average American voter. Uh, you know, budgeting is not necessarily the, the funnest thing to watch. It's not nearly as dramatic as the Kavanaugh hearings have been. Um, but I mean, there's definitely something to be said for the fact that, you know, Trump at one point referred to this as a ridiculous spending bill and then decided, okay, I'm going to support this. We're going to keep the government open. We're going to make this work. And I do think one of the benefits of what they're doing, again, I am, I am with you in terms of the spending is, uh, ridiculous. I am ashamed of some Republicans who have put things into these bills just for, uh, the self-serving reasons that you've sort of mentioned, um, but I mean, ultimately, when we look at this, the benefit of not working off of, you know, continuances sure. uh, is that we can actually spend money where we need it. I mean, the one yeah. thing I think we sometimes forget is that when we think about continuing resolutions, you have to spend money on the exact same things you did the year before, whether you want it or not. Yeah. Um, it keeps going on those same lines. And that's that's dangerous. Um, now, again, in the military, on the, the military side of this budget, I think we could say that, as you've pointed out, we're spending money where we where we maybe don't need to. But if we have to keep funding those same things with those yeah. restrictions, that's difficult. So being able to break out of that, hopefully, um, in my eyes, will at least lead to some fiscal responsibility with at least the money going towards things where it's not duplicating efforts that don't need to be duplicated. Yeah. Well, you know, on the one more thing I wanted to point out on the defense side of things. Now, there are some people who will say, well, and it's important to have a strong defense and so forth. And I certainly don't disagree with that. But one one fact that I think wasn't really very, uh, very, uh, or very uh, strongly or well reported on is that to pay for this increase in weapon systems, what the appropriators recommended is cutting back operations and maintenance budgets. So you have more stuff. And, but you have actually less of a capability to maintain the stuff that you have. And that's so you can you can actually look better on paper. But if you're not maintaining what you have, you can actually have worse readiness. So don't assume that just because we have appropriations for more fighter jets and more ships, that that necessarily means we're better prepared, because the real heart of this is making sure that what we have is in good working order and we're ready to go. And those are the things that appropriators don't care about nearly as much because they don't create jobs in their districts. Exactly. But not having well-maintained equipment does. Um, I mean, if you think about that, we've almost built in the self-fulfilling prophecy of, well, if I have to decommission everything 30% earlier because it's not maintained in a meaningful way, that means I get to build new later on in the next budget cycle. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, the cycle in that sense is definitely going to continue. And again, I think it comes back to when we think about what resonates with the voters, Maintenance and operations isn't sexy. <laughs> yeah. New air, new carriers, new planes, new jets. That's something we can show, you know, go America. Yeah. Um, and again, I think it's, a, I, I'm all for having a strong military and a big military, but to your point, it needs to be a well-maintained military. And again, especially for our troops, um, they don't need to be in shoddy conditions in areas where, again, the maintenance is making it a risk in some way, shape or form. Yeah. With, with, without a doubt. Absolutely. So any, any other, 
anything else strike you about about this about this budget? Uh, for me, again, I think the the biggest thing that struck me is that this process, more so than in even most years, has gone on um, so behind the scenes with such yeah. little attention. Um, you know, I think it's something where you know, even as someone who reads a good amount, I'm having to find myself digging when I think about the budget process, and it hasn't been on the forefront of my mind like it has been in recent years. Um, and I think that's for two reasons: one, they're actually doing something, so we're not sitting here talking about a stalemate. But number two, it's just become one of those operational pieces of government um, that I don't think, you know, and like you said, when it's 93-7 in the Senate, that's a pretty clear sign that this isn't something we can draw political divides over, which means it seems like the news coverage doesn't really want to spend time on it. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. And I I was in the same situation. I I knew it was that time of year because those of us who focus on, you know, public policy know that September is usually the time when when we need to start focusing on the budget. But you actually I actually had to dig myself uh, a little a little more than usual, certainly to to get some good information on that when that would normally be a highlight uh, given. But given what that's been going on, it's understandable. Um, so, you know, I, I know we've spent a lot of time, obviously, on Kavanaugh and uh, certainly the, the budget, but I, I'd also like to spend some time on uh, uh, responding to some, some listener questions with, with you this week, if that's okay, Will. Absolutely. Uh, and we actually have two questions we can look at today. Um, before, we, both- before we get to those, Will, though, I, I would just wanted to say that um, last week, you know, Jay and I were on the show and there were a lot of people who were really upset about Jay's comments about accusations against against Judge Kavanaugh. And of course, it's Will, Will and I are running are doing the show this week. But I really felt that given the volume and, and really the vehemence of the of response to what Jay said, I wanted to bring Jay on to you know, to respond, to give his take on this. And so what I did is just before Will and I started recording this morning, uh, I got uh, Jay on the, on the line and we had a short conversation. So I was thinking, well, before you and I get into listener questions, we can, we can kind of play that and let listeners get, uh, get a sense of how Jay uh, reacted to that. That's okay with you. That sounds great to me. Okay, great. Well, uh, here it is. So Jay, you uh, took quite a bit of heat after last week's show, didn't you? I, I suppose so, but uh, that's sort of what I'm here for. But, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, there, there I, mean were... I wasn't even supposed. I wasn't even like the like the uh, from clerks. I wasn't even supposed to be here today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, but you know, I really there were so many comments. I thought that maybe the best way to approach all of this is kind of a way to frame it is by reading a message I got yesterday from Bernie, who's one of our Patreon supporters, and I should point okay. out that. Bernie sent this after sig- not that Bernie. No. No, not that <laughs> Bernie. No, Bernie sent this after significantly increasing his monthly support amount through Patreon and we really appreciate that. So first off, I want to just thank you Bernie uh for for uh your support of the show. Okay. So here's what he wrote. Hi guys, I just upped my donation because I really appreciate what you are trying to do. I really feel for Jay. I come from a very conservative family and while I'm more liberal than my family, I'm generally much more conservative than my friends. I find myself sympathizing with Jay and his quest to explain that conservatism is not mean-spirited to to liberals who might not want to hear it. However, I think Jay missed a great opportunity to do the right thing in last week's episode when discussing Dr. Ford's allegations against Judge Kavanaugh. I listened to the episode and then replayed it to be sure But Jay never once expressed any sympathy for Dr. Ford, even in a conditional way. Surely saying something like, if she was in fact assaulted, then that was a truly horrific event and I am sorry that it ever happened to her, couldn't have been that hard. So I want to give Jay a chance to clarify and expand on his remarks and his feelings on sexual assault in general. Jay, I want to know, number one, do you believe that in general, not necessarily this specific case, that women commonly make false accusations of sexual assault? Number two, do you believe that if Judge Kavanaugh committed the alleged sexual assault, then he should be on the Supreme Court? And number three, do you believe that crimes committed before the age of 18 should disqualify persons from political offices or political appointments in general? Uh, And then Bernie ends, I'm hoping Jay proves he and conservatives in general are not as heartless as the last episode sounded. 
So, so well, you know, and I thought this was a good comment to use because it, it's coming sure. from an assumption of, well, maybe you just need to clarify and perhaps a misunderstanding as opposed to so much of our debate, which assumes bad will and bad intention and goes from there. And, and since that I, I favor sexual assault, well, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously that's an extreme, but, but, <laughs> but yeah. And so I thought that this would be a good comment. So, uh, uh what do you think about that? Do you want to just take these things one at a time sure. then? Okay. Ab- absolutely. Sure. Um, Great. Uh, so as for the part one, do I, do I think that women, uh, commonly, uh, make up allegations of, of sexual assault? I'm going to say, of course not. Uh, I think it's, I mean, that's, to me, that's sort of, it, it sort of, it goes without saying, uh, that, that no, most people don't make up allegations, uh, of, of anything. Um, that said, I mean, and those false allegations do happen. Um, and, and they can be based on things as a matter of false identification, false memory, or sometimes just making it up. And I mean, a couple of examples I could throw out to you. I mean, one would be the uh, Rolling Stone, you know, rape case, UVA, uh, where, uh, again, it, it turned out this this was a completely, um, f- it was complete fiction. And you had lots of lives who were, that were, were destroyed. People lost their jobs. People lost their credibility. Uh, they eventually recovered, uh, fortunately, millions of dollars from Rolling Stone. Um, but a reputation is hard to get back. So no, I don't think uh, allegations like this are, are commonly made, um, but whether they're common or uncommon, there's still a uh, trouble me is, is so much the idea of, of we will believe an allegation uh, simply because it's an allegation. Okay. Um, without, without, and, and that, that was, I mean, the point where we were last week uh, before there had been any testimony, uh, that's, that's all we had was, was a letter. Um, uh, and yet we had people flocking to say that, that they believe this person who they've never met, never heard from, never you know, had been cross-examined, uh, never been under oath, uh, that, that that should do a Supreme Court uh, nomination. So, uh, yes, to answer question one, no, I don't, I don't think uh, okay. people make these things up commonly. Okay. Um, and that second sec- part was— Yeah, that second question is, uh, do you believe that if Judge Kavanaugh committed the alleged sexual assault that he should be on the Supreme Court? I'd say no at this point. And, and my no is based on two things. One, the, the sexual assault, which to me is sort of looking back. It, it would be one thing if, for example, um, this had started out and uh, he had said, listen, I've done some things in my past when I was a kid I'm not proud of. I, you know, I was drunk. I made some mistakes. Uh, but I've changed my ways. I've lived my life in a completely different way since then, since, uh, you know, 36 years ago. Um, in that kind of case, no, I, I don't think something done uh, uh, when one was a teen should disqualify you from from all future office. Uh, more pl- problematic is um, he has you know testified <laughs> under oath that he didn't do it. So uh, if, if there are facts that can can show that he did, and, and of course the the biggest problem that I have with all of this is the nature of the allegations are are unprovable. Uh, one way or another, they, they, you, it's very difficult to prove. If it's not, I'd say it's impossible to prove that it happened, and it's possible to prove that it didn't happen, um, based on the passage of time and what we know, and just the lack of evidence. Um, okay. So, so no, I, I would say no. He, he should at this point, obviously, he should not. Uh, it rat raises another issue, quite honestly, of of uh, should he remain on the D.C. Circuit? Right. Uh, and and I, again, I would have to say uh, in this case, no, he shouldn't. Uh, if it's it's shown uh, by evidence that he is that he you know lied to the Senate, yeah, um, and he of course could so, be like any federal judge could is subject to impeachment and removal. Yeah, yeah. okay, right. And, and then finally, there's that third question: Do you believe that crimes committed before the age of eighteen should disqualify persons from political offices or political appointments in general? I I go back to sort of what I said in the my last answer is it depends. Um, First of all, I mean, in, in most states, crimes under 18, it's you're treated as a juvenile. The records are sealed, uh, and it is it is sort of buried away. It doesn't come out. Um, now there might be an obligation to report some of that in background checks, and and I could give you some. You know, Mike. Again, this is something that uh, 
I've I've uh, applied for positions and worked in positions uh, where there were FBI background checks required and, and performed. I have been a I've been interviewed by the FBI uh, for background checks for friends and acquaintances who have been in federal jobs. Um, and I can tell you those jobs that, that they've worked for, uh, while important, were nowhere near as important as Supreme Court justice. Uh, and I can also tell you the FBI did a pretty thorough job of asking me questions about these people I knew. Um, and that's and maybe I'm taking some of that into into this experience, that if there was something that uh, that had happened in the fact that he had been White House counsel, uh, Court of Appeals judge, uh, all these other positions where there had been background checks, that something would have come up uh, just based on the breadth of, of interviews that, that I'm, I'm sort of familiar with uh, from that process. Sure. But um, so, so again, maybe there was a, a, um, some requirement to, to uh, state, you know, juvenile yeah. acts. But I, in, in general, no, look, let's, let's look at, I mean, people did dumb things when they were kids. Sure. Uh, but so as, you, think, it, as you said, it, it depends on the nature of the dumb thing. I mean, if you're a yeah. if you were a and serial rapist they, or you killed people yeah. or you tortured whatever. I mean, so and that's the I think it's important to point out that the it depends nature of it is is very much dependent on. It sounds like that the nature of the crime or crimes one had committed. Right. Well, and, and the nature of the crimes and also then what one's done with their life after that. Sure. Okay. You know, if there was there was you know some honest contrition and changed ways, and if it was a, uh, you know, again a, a one time I was young, I was dumb, I was drunk, stupid kind of kind of thing, but I've learned my lesson, and, and you know it was a big life. That that's that's one thing. Um, if it was hell, I got away with it, and you know kept doing it for for years and years afterwards. That's that's something completely different. So and, and, and then finally, b- before you go, Jay, I, there's a question here in what Bernie writes, and I think a lot of other people are wondering it too. And he didn't specifically state it, but it's it's pretty implicit throughout. Is is what a lot of people felt was your what they characterized as your complete lack of, of sympathy and belief in Dr. Ford. And I was wondering if just kind of briefly you could, you could speak to that. Let, you know, let me, and, and I'll, I'll, I will go and tell you a little bit personally about, uh, about me, because maybe there's no reason you should know this, but, um, you know, earlier in my career, I served as a uh, uh, magistrate in a uh, common police court. One of my jobs was holding hearings uh, for anti-stalking orders. Uh, I actually held these hearings. Uh, I had witnesses come in my office. We put them on the record with a, a court reporter. Uh, they testified under oath, and I issued protective orders. Uh, I did that pretty frequently. I could say, uh, I'm thinking back in my entire history of, of all the ones I did, there was maybe one uh, that I think was questionable that uh, I, I said, you know, you need to come back with more facts before I can grant this. Um, so to say, I mean, I'm, I haven't listened to victims, haven't been sympathetic to, to victims. Uh, no, I, I that that bothers me a lot when I hear that. Um, it also bothers me because I, I yeah. again, this is you know perhaps more information that people need to know. But um, I I had a girlfriend in college uh, who was a victim of sexual assault, um, actually sexual assault by a family member. Um, uh, and you know, she remained even after we were no longer, you know, a couple, uh, a really close friend of mine. Uh, and uh, again, the, just the idea that that well, if I knew someone, or or if I'd have ever had an experience with something like this, I'd I'd feel differently. Um, that's, that's complete bull. And and that that I think there's I'm I'm that angers me. I want to push back against that um, okay. to say, listen, these these are the things I've I've done, and. Uh, just because I, I don't particularly find uh, 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 Dr. Ford credible, particularly on the evidence that we we had before us when we did last week's show, um, uh, I I find that offensive okay. that someone would assign the motives to me. Uh, you know, lastly, I guess, and I mean, we're, we're running long, and I was supposed to be on vacation, <laughs> but so much of, of the way that I look at this show when we talk about things um, it's it's I'm, I'm looking at the, the state of the game the state of, of play and then uh, and looking at the politics and analyzing what's going to happen and what's not going to happen 
and so so to me you know the uh, you know emotions of the participants i mean it's it's i'm, I'm looking at uh, no i i get I, I suppose, what, yeah. I my i mean it, it sounds extent, like you're saying I that being came, I came across as, as cold. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I, I think being I analytical I, sometimes can seem cold, but you're looking at the politics and the strategy as opposed to the kind of emotional content of it is, is my sense of things. Yeah. And, and that's, that's so, and again, I, I'm not, I mean, look, I don't do the show to be a therapist, right? I don't, you know, I mean, that's, that's not my, my thing. Um, uh, but I, I do do, do this to, um, to, to try to give my opinion as to what's going on. Uh, and I think there are some, look, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I've worked in situations and I, I, I think there's a lot of people who listen who maybe haven't had the same experiences that I have in terms of dealing with some really bad people. <laughs> I mean, and, and there are out there, uh, in politics and in law. Um, and maybe I, I come in with a more jaded uh, opinion um, just because I've, I've been through that and I've seen some really unscrupulous things. I've seen some really cynical plays like this um, and I've seen how it plays out. And I can tell you, being having been close to people uh, who are in power, um, there is there is very much a, a cynicism and a coldness and a, a calculation that that, you know, you look at, you know, the emotions of, of the parties are really irrelevant. Um, so that's uh, that's that's one thing. And the other piece is, uh, as a lawyer, um, I, I look at this also as uh, how how strongly one feels about a claim uh, is irrelevant to whether that claim can be proven or not. If you follow me, mm-hmm. uh, again, that that sounds cold, uh, and, and you know, based on um, uh, Dr. Ford's testimony. Uh, or on Thursday, I mean, she appeared to be traumatized by something. But it's one thing to, to say, um, you know, I've had a traumatic event and I you feel sympathetic, uh, but it's quite another to say, I feel sympathetic for this person, uh, therefore Kavanaugh must have done it. Uh, that's, that's, to me, again, it's the, a big jump, and that's something in our legal system that, I mean, juries and judges <laughs> are, are instructed, listen, you don't decide the case on sympathy. Uh, you have to decide it on the facts. Um, so, I mean, if I came across as unsympathetic, I, that wasn't my intent, but uh, that, I guess that wasn't, I don't know, that wasn't, wasn't what I was, was going for. Sure. Okay. Well, that sense? yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and again, like I said, I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to do this and, and now you can uh, go and enjoy the rest of your, the rest of your weekend. Okay, so Will, uh, what, what do we have in terms of questions for the two of us this week? Yeah, our first question uh, comes from Ryan. It's a really interesting question, and I think it's especially pertinent this week with everything that we've seen going on. And Ryan writes, I was curious to see if you guys agree or disagree with Robert Reich's argument that if President Trump is impeached and removed from office on the grounds of colluding with the Russians to influence the 2016 election, his entire presidency should be annulled on the grounds that he wasn't legitimately elected and therefore any actions taken by his administrations are not constitutionally valid. Reich argued that the Supreme Court could presumably declare unconstitutional any acts of an administration that was not legitimately elected, or that Congress could propose a constitutional amendment annulling all of the Trump administration's actions. Is Reich going too far here? If this idea became popular on the left, would it hurt the Democratic Party? So Mike, what do you think about Reich's arguments and concerns here? Well, I, I just the, the sigh is sort of, I guess, what I think. You know, um, I I used to really like Robert Reich, and, and this is coming. Of course, I, I know this is probably going to be what Robert Reich is suggesting is going to resonate with some people who are further to the left than I am. Um, but I I felt that Robert Reich used to be someone very much worth listening to. I mean, he's always been a, a man of the left, always been liberal. But and in fact, I actually used one of his books, a super capitalism, which I think is a great book. I used it in my economics policy class for a number of years, and I'd still recommend it. Um, but it seems like in recent years, he has decided to become more of a polemicist. And he's kind of given into, I guess, what I'd call the allure of left-wing stardom, uh, which is uh, for what that, whatever that's worth. It's not a, it's kind of a sad sort of stardom. But 
And it's really too bad because he's a brilliant guy. And I think ideas like this are designed just basically to, to rev up the base. And exactly as Ryan points out, I think these are exactly the sort of ideas that make more moderate folks on both sides say, oh, come on, then look at those liberals. So, yeah, I think this actually does is the kind of thing that makes Democrats look unreasonable. The idea of annulling a presidency, I think that's that's absolutely a constitutional bridge too far, which is not to say you can't make some sort of a theoretical argument for it. But my gosh, what a disaster. So, yeah, I think it's a it's a horrible argument. It's a horrible idea. And I continue to be so incredibly disappointed in somebody who I know is a brilliant economist, a brilliant guy who's just gone off you know, in my mind, kind of gone off the, the far left deep end. So that, that's, that's my take on it. That's a pretty, uh, I think I've been pretty clear <laughs> on that. Uh, so what do you think, Will? Yeah, uh, I, can, I can share a lot of your sentiments, obviously. A few differing points. Number one, I, I unlike you, have never really loved Robert Reich's arguments. I, now, I will say, I have also assigned some of Robert Reich's work in my classes. Um, and I've normally respected him as, you know, I disagree with lots, almost everything he thinks. Um, but ultimately, it's a well-reasoned, well-argued, good thing to be exposed to. I think some of Robert Reich's earlier works on the economic side have definitely helped me strengthen my arguments against some policies I disagree with. My concern with, with pieces like this as I read this story um, is that if it's not Robert Reich's name attached to that, it could be on a website that was created by you know, a conspiracy theory blog. Um, more or less. And and that's concerning to me because I think his name attached to it gives it credibility that it just doesn't have. Um, and also, I mean, let's even say that this does play out. So when Ryan asked, you know, what would it do? Let's say this does play out. What this would do if we annul an entire presidency, if we bring the Supreme Court into this or Congress passes a constitutional amendment, is if this all happened, that would just prolong the pain, the suffering of having to deal with the fallout from this. Um, you know, I mean, I take it back to, you know, when Nixon resigns and we know how bad Nixon was, our hope was we need to move on as quickly as we can to better days. Um, a constitutional amendment or the Supreme Court making it so that Donald Trump's presidency never existed will unquestionably not do that. Um, and it's also, you know, from a practical standpoint, if you want to talk about things that would be difficult to pull off here, you know, so if we annul his entire presidency, anything he signed goes away, whether Congress actually liked it or not. Um, so we have lots of issues that come from this. Does everybody have to give back money they've been appropriate? So many policy questions that lead us to know this wouldn't be politically plausible. But the idea, again, that the conversation is being stuck on these types of hypothetical points takes us away from the actual discussions we need to be having. Yeah. Um, in all honesty, I mean, this is a type of argument that, in my eyes, is why you created the politics, guys. Yeah. So we could bring the moderate centrist view and not spend time looking at the loony left and the loony right. Yeah, and that, like I said, and that's really what, what, bothers, what bothers me, because this isn't just some nut who's making this argument, you know, it's somebody who is sort of a, a leading light of the, uh, of the left. And when, when that's, when that's the case, when I, when I just feel that somebody, because clearly he knows that this is not politically viable and he understands how disastrous this would be, you know, he's, there's no way he couldn't. And so for him to advance this sort of argument, I feel is just fundamentally irresponsible. And that's what it's so incredibly disappointing to me uh, about the whole thing, I guess. So Robert Reich, please, if you're listening, not that you are, but, uh, but if, <laughs> come, come back and become the Robert Reich of the, of the, of the late nineties and early aughts. Oh, that would be so wonderful because he's a brilliant guy who really does have a lot to offer when he's not being uh, an irresponsible polemicist, I would say. So, you know, and I know that kind of, I know that we're, uh, we're, we're kind of running long on time, but with, I didn't want to cut Jay short, certainly on his, uh, on his commentary, his response in, in, in listener mail. But, uh, I do want to point out, Will, that if people are not tired of hearing us, we have our, our supporters exclusive after show. And in fact, you and I are going to be recording that right after we're done here. And I know we've got some we've got some uh, interesting stuff, I think, that we're going to be talking about. So if people want to check into that, if you are, of course, a supporter, you'll 
if I do my job right in, in posting the show, that should be up by the time you hear this. Uh, and also, if you want to get access to that, you can just become a supporter. Go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's the direct link or just politicsguys.com. And if you noodle around the site there, you'll see the support the show thing. And and, and that would be uh, that would be great and helpful. And you get to hear more of more of uh, Will, me, Jay, Trey and, and everyone really every week. So I think uh, I think that would that just about does it for us uh, on this show, at least, right? Well, yes, it does, um, and that's it for the episode. As you mentioned, thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard, uh, and as you just mentioned, obviously, Mike, listener listener support is what keeps the show going, uh, and we obviously truly appreciate it. Especially myself coming in coming in new here. Um, subscribing to the show also helps us uh, as does sharing our episodes and helping us build our our listenership. And it's easy to do right in your podcast app. Just click on the share symbol little triangle thing uh, and word of mouth is obviously our best advertising we'd greatly appreciate it including on social media um, leaving reviews and ratings on itunes helps as well if you have questions comments corrections random thoughts uh, you can reach us at mail at politicsguy.com on our facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week that's facebook.com forward slash politics guy politics guys page and we're also on twitter at the uh, politics guys handle Executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Varanowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Uh, we'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us then.